Shalom, this is Rabbi Tama Davis Hart from Beth Elohim Messianic Synagogue in West Central Florida, bringing you commentary on Parashah number 13, Shemot, which translates as names. It's also the beginning book of Exodus. If you have any questions, comments, uh, subjects you want me to address in the future, please go to our website at rabdavis.org and click on uh, Ask the Rabbi, and I'll be happy to get back with you and address those concerns. So there's a small, and I put that in, in uh, quotation marks, but significant letter that starts this parasha. In Hebrew, the parasha starts with the word and. This conjunction indicates there's no separation from the previous parasha. In fact, in the Hebrew, the first six words of the parasha is identical to those in Genesis 46.8. Taking us back to review Genesis, we're better equipped mentally to appreciate the forward progress of God's plan to redeem mankind, that is, those who follow his Torah. This one concept of connecting Genesis and Exodus serves as a reminder that everything is connected. We cannot treat the books or verses of the Bible in isolation any more than we can separate the complex unity of the Godhead into three separate entities, as is taught in Christianity but not taught by God's word. Now that Israel's flourished and grown as a nation, Pharaoh expresses his ego by way of enslaving the Israelites with poor treatment. When that didn't affect the desired outcome, he ordered the midwives to kill all of the male newborns. Thanks to God, his plans never fail. And the two midwives, Shifra and Pua, loved and feared God more than Pharaoh, and they let the male infants live. The action of these two women set the stage for many other women who played a critical and crucial role in God's plan as it unfolds, sort of like tightly wrapped knots in the tzitzot. Not only are women used by God throughout his Torah, but a few were given the privilege of a very close relationship with him, such as Mary, who was the vehicle for his physical manifestation as Messiah, and those who faithfully followed him throughout his ministry. In our Padashah, we see how God uses women in diverse ways, through the midwives, Pharaoh's daughter, and Moshe's mother. God's power can soften the hearts of anyone, Egyptian or Israelite, Gentile or Jew, as we read in this parasha. As for Moshe, he was taken in to be raised as an Egyptian. Interestingly, Moshe's name means pulled out, which is exactly what happens when an individual comes to God by accepting Yeshua's sacrifice and learning to follow God's commands out of love. Although Moshe was raised in the house of Pharaoh, when he went out to visit his kinsmen, he was moved with compassion when he saw one of the Egyptians struck a Hebrew. Perhaps he developed a sense of compassion, remembering the compassion shown to him by Pharaoh's daughter, his sister, and mother as she was raising him, knowing she had to relinquish him to Pharaoh's daughter. Now let's go to the Zohar for an interesting messianic perspective from this Kabbalistic commentary. We're jumping ahead to the punishment of Egypt and Edom that's in the works explained in our Padishah and in the Brit Kadishah, so-called New Testament. I'm going to quote directly from the Zohar, as the narrative cannot be improved upon. It's my hope that the reader can read into this text and quote-unquote see the connection to the book of Revelation and Yeshua's return. And it says, and I quote, Now if Egypt was punished, notwithstanding the kindness with which she treated Israel, Especially at first, it can certainly be expected that Assyria and Edom, and in fact all the nations who have maltreated Israel, 
will receive their punishment from the Holy One when he will manifest the glory of his name to them. As it is written, Thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known among many nations. That's in Ezekiel 38:23. Rabbi Simeon lifted up his hands and wept. Alas, he said, for him who will live at that time, yet happy he will, he who will live at that time. When the Holy One comes to visit the Hind, that's H-I-N-D, which is also a, a term for Israel, he will examine who it is that remains loyal to her, and at that time, and then woe to him who shall not be found worthy, and of whom it shall be said, I looked and there was no one to help. Isaiah 62:23. Many sufferings shall then befall Israel, but happy he who will be found faithful at that time, for he shall see the joy-giving light of the king. Concerning that time it is proclaimed, I will refine them as silver is refined, and I will try them as gold is tried. It's in Zechariah 13:9. Then shall pangs and travail overtake Israel, and all nations and their kings shall furiously rage together and take counsel against her. Thereupon a pillar of fire will be suspended from heaven to earth for forty days, visible to all nations. Then the Messiah will arise from the Garden of Eden, from that place which is called the bird's nest. He will arise in the land of Galilee, and on that day the whole world will be shaken, and all the children of men shall seek refuge in caves and rocky places. Concerning that time it is written, and they shall go into the holes of the rocks and to the caves of the earth for fear of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. Isaiah 2.19 The glory of his majesty refers to the Messiah when he shall revel himself in the land of Galilee. For in this part of the Holy Land the desolation first began, and therefore he will manifest himself there first and from there begin to bore against the world, unquote. Wow, if that's not taken right out of Revelation or prophesying in accordance with and consistently with Revelation, I don't know what is. Scrolling down in the text a bit further, we read that after a designated time, quote, the Holy One shall show forth his power before all the nations of the earth, and the Messiah shall be manifested throughout the whole universe, and all the kings will write to fight against him. And even in Israel, there will be found some wicked ones who shall join them in the fight against the Messiah. Then there will be darkness over all the world, and for fifteen days shall it continue, and many in Israel shall perish in that darkness. Concerning this darkness it is written, Behold, darkness covers the earth, and gross darkness the peoples. Isaiah 60, verse 2. Now in the above narrative, we clearly see that not everyone is going to make it. Indeed, not everyone in Israel is going to make it. When the Torah says all Israel shall be saved, Israel is defined as all true believers. Who's a true believer? Not just those that profess the name of quote-unquote Jesus or God. Not just those. You have to do more than profess. This is an active walking and obeying God out of love. How do you do that? You follow his instructions, his Torah. It's as simple as that. That's the manual. That's the GPS for our lives if we want to be saved in the end. And again, salvation is not a once saved, always saved guarantee. We will not know if we are going to be saved until we stand before a Messiah and allow him to decide whether or not we were good and faithful servants. 
In Romans 11.26, it does not mean every biological Jew or those within the confines of the state of Israel will be saved. As I said, just as the Israelites had to make a choice to uh, apply the blood of the sacrificial lambs on their lentils, the doorposts of their homes, to be spared from the angel of death about to pass through Egypt that night, all men must choose to either accept the sacrifice of Yeshua, who was the sacrificial lamb for all who seek the living water and the bread of life, or die the second death that is eternal separation from God in hell. We have free choice. But there is a time it's going to be too late. Today is the day to make that choice. Haftarah. This is out of Jeremiah 1.1. 1, 1. This Haftarah speaks to similarities between Moshe and Jeremiah as they were called by God for their specific missions. They were both humble men who initially accepted to recuse themselves from their God-given tasks. God reassured both men that they were prepared for their mission and that they would not be killed at the hands of their enemies. Jeremiah saw a staff from an almond tree, a symbol described in Numbers 17.23, to designate Aharon as the man God chose as the high priest before all Israel and to represent that the legitimate priesthood would remain with Israel. Only the kingship would be lost through their disobedience. Similarly, we need to accomplish our purpose in life, which is to glorify God, as did these great prophets. Our specific mission is made known to us at God's chosen time, whether in our youth or in our old age. We need to prepare our hearts and minds to take advantage of the opportunities as they are presented. Like Jeremiah, God is with us to rescue us. Jeremiah 119. Great Kaddishah's out of Hebrews 11. This narrative reiterates and emphasizes the inextricable connection between trusting and obedience. In fact, trusting is an action verb that indicates that true belief in Yahweh Yeshua mandates action. This is accomplished by loving obedience to his commands as we read in the scriptures that I'm going to share with you right now. In 11.1, trusting is being confident of what we hope for, convinced about things we do not see. It was for this that scripture attested the merit of the people of old. Trusting or faith, by the way, in Greek is called pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S. Being confident, Greek form is apostasis, meaning that which stands under. What gives present reality to what we hope for? In contrast to the rest of the chapter, which analyzes various heroes of faith chronicled in the Tanakh, this verse sets forth a basic function of trusting, namely that by trusting we understand. Or as the 11th century Christian theologian Anselm put it, credo ut intelligum, I believe in order to understand. Those who refuse to take the tiny step necessary to trust in God cannot understand the most basic truths. The benevolent consequences of faith are not only emotional, but affect the realm of the mind. By trusting, the parents of Moshe hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they weren't afraid of the king's decree. By trusting, Moshe, after he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose being mistreated along with God's people rather than enjoying the passing pleasures of sin. He had come to regard abuse suffered on behalf of the Messiah as greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he kept his eyes fixed on the reward. The author devotes more space to Moshe than to any of the other heroes of faith except Abraham. 
in verse 23 the parents of moshe amron and yokoved hid him by placing him in a basket to float in the nile so that he wouldn't be killed according to pharaoh's decree in answer to their faith pharaoh's daughter found him there and raised him as her own even employing the child's own mother to nurse him this was all according to god's plan we should never doubt for a moment that god is watching caring and intervening on our behalf every minute of the day verse 24 through 6 moshe had every possible advantage egypt could offer jewish tradition maintains that as the adopted child of pharaoh's daughter he may even have been in line for the throne but he also had knowledge of god's revelation and of his own identity as an israelite and chose being mistreated along with god's people rather than enjoying the prerequisites of his position until finally he was forced to flee for his life in 26 he had come to regard abuse suffered on behalf of the messiah moshe did not yet know of yeshua as far as we know but there are hints that he may have there is not evidence that he had specific knowledge of the coming messiah savior or son of god but he did refer to a star capital s that would come out of jacob and that's in numbers 24 17 through 19 and to a future prophet like himself described in deuteronomy but yokanan or john 5:46, says that moshe nevertheless wrote about yeshua so we can pretty well deduce that although there's not direct evidence this is all implied and supported in scripture that he may have had uh, some notion of yeshua as messiah and not just a prophet so one may fairly say that Moshe suffered on behalf of all God's promises, both those known to him at the time and that God would make in the future. And after that's clear that this impl implies that his suffering abuse on behalf of the Messiah, Shaul or Paul, in many ways the Moshe of his day suffered similarly. He kept his eyes fixed on the reward, which was not seen. May we learn and internalize the truth that God uses those he chooses no matter their past, for his glory, and that we need only be good and faithful servants, making him our top priority in all things. In all things. We need to make him our top priority of life. Things are getting very bad very quickly. And Matthew 24 stands out uh, like a, a neon sign now. All of these things that are happening so quickly. Even the secular community is predicting war within one to two years but whether it happens in one to two years or another thousand years which i don't think will take that long for sure we need to have our souls and our minds ready to serve god we need to be able to spiritually stand at the side of the road in the ready with our our armor and our shields and be ready to defend god's torah and allow him to use us for his glory shabbat shalom